when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Hi, it's Kara. We're taking this week off for the holidays, but we have a special bonus episode for you today. It's an episode of Function with Anil Dash, which is another show from the Vox Media Podcast Empire. Anil is the CEO of Glitch, and you've heard him on this podcast, Recode Decode, talk about that. But in this show, Function, he talks to developers, designers, and culture experts to understand the ways tech is changing culture and what it means for us. I think you'll really enjoy it, so let's take a listen. Welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash. All season long, we've been talking about trust on the internet, whether we've got it and how it gets broken. And I'm super interested in that topic because the internet and social media are so embedded in our lives. All of us rely on it for our work, to stay connected to our family and friends, and especially just to understand the world around us. These days, two-thirds of Americans say that they get at least some of their news from social media. Those social networks weren't originally created to enable news to be shared. Sure, you could always post a link on Facebook or Twitter since they've been around, and I know because I was on them pretty much from the beginning. But the people making the technology really saw that as no different than sharing a photo or anything else. They didn't have a special treatment for news. And then things evolved over time. You know, really had a good intent. They thought they wanted to make it easier to discover things or they wanted to make sure to emphasize the information that's most important to you. But they made algorithms that started to make decisions about what information we see and when, which sources are considered credible or not. These are choices. And a choice about what information matters and what information is accurate, that's an editorial choice. You know, I used to work at a newspaper. That was the decisions that editors were making. And so what you've got is the major tech companies, the social media platforms, making journalistic decisions about the world, even though, well, pretty much none of the people making those decisions were journalists. They were computer programmers or product managers or designers, all well-intentioned. I really do think they wanted to do good. But the reality is you can't do well in a very complicated field that you know nothing about. And we saw the results of those choices in 2016. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. I'm sickened, I'm without words. I thought for sure that Hillary would win this election, that Hillary would win Florida. Social media played a huge part in the 2016 election. It was used to get the message out for then-candidate Trump. What we're talking about is a major foreign power with the sophistication and ability 
to involve themselves in a presidential election and sow conflict and discontent all over this country. Starting in 2014, Cambridge Analytica funded a personality test on Facebook and paid people to take it. The alleged goal influenced the views of the American electorate. The election surprised everybody, but also prompted this deeper examination into the impact that technology broadly and social media specifically were having on our lives. Tech is suddenly realizing it has to confront the value of journalism in society, but also the challenges of making it happen. There's also the question of how journalism is adapted. As soon as that question came up, I thought the one person I'd most want to talk to about this is a professor of journalism at NYU, Jay Rosen. He's written a couple of different books about journalism in this new era. I study the press as an institution and the pressures that come to bear on it. Social media has fundamentally changed the way that news is disseminated these days. So I talked to Jay to find out how we got here and also where we go from here. I'm very glad to welcome Jay Rosen. Thank you very much, Anil. There are people that have this deep and abiding reverence for journalism as an institution and yes. almost like a priesthood and that you yes. have to protect it. And you've never had that. You've you've always been a little bit challenging of that. And, and I think one of the seminal sort of phrases that, uh, to me, sort of typified your challenge of, okay, what is journalism's role in the ecosystem and how does the how do people within this institution see themselves was the view from nowhere. Yeah. Can you sort of, for people who may not be familiar, can you succinctly describe the view from nowhere? Well, that's my term for a very well-known pattern in the American press, but also other countries' press. Um, where journalists tried to persuade us to believe in them by making a claim like this. I don't have a stake. I don't have an interest. I don't have an assumption. I don't have a party. I don't. No dog in this fight. I have no dog in this fight. I'm just telling you the way it is, so you should believe it because I have no view. My impartiality is my credential. Mm-hmm. I sometimes call this viewlessness mm-hmm. as a presumed good. So it happened within the evolution of American journalism that this became the dominant way to persuade people to accept your account is to demonstrate that it has no stake, interest, bias, spin. (laughs) And so not only was a profession built on that claim, but a market force was built on that claim, which is the Metropolitan Newspaper, which eventually became more or less a monopoly product by appealing to everyone. So there was a commercial logic to it. There was a status logic to it, which is in in American culture, if you want higher status, you can make more money, but also you have to start acting like a profession. You have to say that that you that you deliver a public good, that you some have some sort of elevated roles, elevated commitment. Mm-hmm. You see, what is that based on? Like how do, how do you um, persuade Americans? that you offer a public good. So there's a rhetoric or a narrative that you have to perform, you have to say, if you want America to believe that your institution, your business, your industry is good and important and must be defended. And, and 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 it seems like the sort of the pillars of that are one, there is a public, two, you're serving that public, and three, you do so from above the fray. Yes. Being, being neutral, yes. having no point of view. Yes. And, and it's interesting because it's been more than a dozen years since you sort of formed this narrative of the Correct. view from nowhere. And even if it's not phrased that way, that framing 
of the the political discourse of the cultural discourse has become all pervasive everybody sort of intuitively knows it these days i think it's usually uh, phrased as both sidesism Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. if, if if we have a you know a white supremacist gathering, right. then the news has to say, well, we got to hear from both sides. Yes. And uh, and it ignores sort of the value that even attention and amplification in an ecosystem have value separate from even what the substance of the message is. Right. And that is one example mm-hmm. of many where the view from nowhere, as I have called it, breaks down or doesn't address what's going on. So that's what I've tried to do is name the part of what um, academics would call uh, newsroom objectivity or or professional objectivity. Name the part of it that we don't really need so that we can save the parts of it that are good. So like when people talk about objectivity in journalism, it means a lot of different things. Some of them I think are like, yeah, these are virtues. Right. Like being able to step back from your upbringing and see how other people live, that's a kind of objectivity. Like, I definitely want journalists who can do that, right? Yeah. So what we have to do with this beast, objectivity, which is like this, you know, it's like a blob, Mm -hmm. is you have to start naming the parts of it that work and the parts that don't. So that's why I developed— Yeah, it didn't come from a bad impulse. They didn't. They didn't no, aspire to this objectivity. No, many because things they, that are called objectivity are 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 the are the impulse to tell the truth, to get evidence, to show. You don't have to rely just on my word. Look for yourself. Right. All those things increase objectivity. The kind of objectivity we don't need is when the journalist pretends to be above it all, when they treat everyone else as if. Everyone else has an argument, but they just have facts. These kinds of patterns don't do the press any good. They enrage users, right? And then with the coming of the internet as the baseline for discourse on this, the people who are really dissatisfied by press practice have a way to g- give voice to them. <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's different than when there are an atom – atomized group that can't contact each other. Right, right. Now, all of a sudden, they can, they can say, do you feel this way, too? Do you feel disconnected, too? And they, they that many other people feel this way, right? And they can, quote, unquote, talk back. And writers emerge that represent their dissatisfactions. And all that's a very different environment than when, when I started studying the press. Right. But the view from nowhere is increasingly under attack by events themselves, right. as well as lots of critics, as well as a general evolution in the way people think about this, that, yeah, you know, there probably isn't a, a place above all the action from which to, <laughs> to, from which to view it. Right, like, not anymore. Not, yeah, it's probably not a good thing to go about, like, claiming that. So thank you for that framework, because that gives us a sort of a common ground, where we have we have a vocabulary now, we have a perspective and there's an interesting thing here, too, because one of the reasons it's so important to me to understand journalism and media institutions as a starting point is that we talk about a lot of technology as social media. Yes. Right? And and it used to be called social networking. Yep. And even before that, social, that. social software mm-hmm. in the tradition of, you know, Microsoft Word on, on Windows in the 90s. And, you know, you fast forward 20 years from there. And what we have with media is a whole different set of assumptions, but also people building this technology frame what they do in the language of media and journalism. Mm -hmm. So, So they talk about, Mark Zuckerberg goes to Congress and talks about serving the public. Our policy is that we do not fact check politicians' speech. And the reason for that is that we believe that in a democracy, it is important that people can see for themselves what politicians are saying. Freedom of speech. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. And 
we didn't have conversations about freedom of speech when Microsoft was making Microsoft Word right. in the 90s and you were copying it off of a floppy disk onto your computer. So, so, so something changed to make technology media. Again, Bill Gates, when he was you know, sitting in front of Congress and being examined by the Department of Justice, these issues never came up. He didn't ever have to talk about freedom of speech, freedom of expression, our First Amendment rights. Like that stuff didn't come up. Right. And Zuckerberg, it seems like every six months, is awkwardly drinking water while sweating it out in front of the cameras in Congress and and keeps going back to these trips. So, so that seems like a radical shift. And yet all these folks are still – well, in their case, they're both dropouts for Gates and Zuckerberg. But for the rest of them are folks that have computer science degrees and have probably never once sat in a room of a, of a journalism school or taken a journalism class or have any fluency in media. That's weird, right? Well, it is because what started as a technology company with a engineering culture and origin on a ca- college campus, right, gradually – came to be a media company or a company that disrupts, pardon the expression, media (laughs) hugely, right? Just as it became a slightly different term, it became, I think, an editorial company when, for example, it began explicitly hiring journalists to do journalistic things. Right. You are an editorial company, right? Right. Uh, When, When YouTube chooses what's on their homepage, they're an editorial company. Yes, in some way they are, right. When Twitter says we're going to do moments now and hire journalists to curate them, you just created a newsroom. And send you notifications about them. Totally. Right? It's the same as the push notification for the New York yes. Times in a way. And I think this will address your question. When Twitter first announced that this team was being hired and they were going to do this thing, which became moments and they now curate, right? I happen to have been booked to interview uh, Twitter's head of news, just uh, by chance. So it was the day that this was announced. <laughs> and I said, you know, That's I'm lucky. really fascinated by this team of journalists you've hired. I think it's a really interesting direction for Twitter. In my view, this is actually the moment when Twitter has kind of crossed over into an editorial company. So you're the head of news. I want to know when Twitter does this, when it creates an editorial culture inside a tech company, what vision of journalism is it operating from? What what tradition does it see itself as standing within? What's what your sort of, conceptual model? Mm-hmm, what's your conceptual model? And also, what are your priorities? Where where are you coming from? So I, I just asked a very general question like that. Like, what are you thinking when you – and what I observed was that there was literally no way to get an answer to that. They had literally not thought about that. They instead yes. had done something very, very predictable, very easy to do, which is to simply say, well, what do you mean? We, we're hiring professionals. They're going to exercise their professional So there's sort of a credentialism. Exactly. Huh. That's really interesting because in tech, if you say, yeah, we we are Apple and we're going to make a better camera on the iPhone. And then you say, what what is it going to be able to do? You, it's, oh, it's going to work at low light. And low light means this much, this many candle power and lux and whatever. And it's yeah. going to be able to pick up the colors and and that's it, right? Yeah. So you have this answer which is very knowable. But if you said, iPhone 14 is going to have a better camera, and they said, well, in what way? And he said, well, we're going to hire professionals, and they're going to make a camera, and how dare you interrogate our magic? Right. It would be a little weird, wouldn't it? Yeah. But 
nonetheless, was, this was a perfectly fine answer from the head of news's point of view, from Twitter's point of view. Right. Because um, that was their mandate. Their yeah. mandate was like, give us... Give us some professional credit here. Right, we, yeah. And now, I was very surprised, for example, that it didn't... They didn't say something like when they gave rise to moments, it became a, a kind of a, an editorial company. That they didn't say, for example, that universal human rights were part of a part of their grounding. You know, because Twitter is very associated with that in other ways. Right? Yeah. That would seem like a natural to me if you had, right? Anyway, um, same thing with with Facebook is is they have been forced to admit that they are kind of a media company, and now they're forced to concede that they have an editorial part too. And I'm told by people who may know that this is something personal to Mark, like being accused of wounding news uh, was something that he felt personally and he wanted to uh, try and adjust it. More with Jay Rosen after the break. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US innovate. The catalyst of this conversation is honestly the 2016 election here in the U.S. and the 2020 election here in the U.S., right? And there's many more examples all over the world. I mean, there are actually far more egregious, you know, examples of misinformation. If I look at, you know, WhatsApp and, and Myanmar, it is even more serious and, and, and damaging. But, but, but I think about the, in the U.S. here where these countries, these companies are based, the catalyst was what the heck just happened back in 2016 and what's going to happen that's even worse going forward in 2020? Yeah. And and there's an interesting thing here I see, which is as a as a tech guy myself, we look a lot at security and privacy and and other sort of considerations like that. And there are systemic weaknesses. You look at exploits. You look at hacks. Yes. How do how are they going to hack the system? Right. And it seems to me like the lack of a of a informed perspective and bringing in journalistic functions, editorial functions into the major platforms and the lack of fluency in things like the strengths and weaknesses of the view from nowhere. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Were exploitable hacks. They yeah. were things that, that, that hackers, just as they will find the weaknesses in your security policies and in your, you're running an old version of the software and it's exploitable. These were, editorial organizations running an old version of the journalism software that was very hackable, not in the technical sense. You didn't have to be Russian bots, spammers, all the, all the things that usually get, that get usually blamed here. Mm-hmm. All you had to be was somebody who understands the exploitable aspects of these legacy media systems that were adopted without fluency, and then you would be very hackable. Oh, I think that's dead on. I think the news system evolving at a slower rate than the network around it. Mm. 
is exploitable. The whole view from nowhere contains a flaw in the code in the sense that when the system that makes um, public service journalism possible is under attack because there's a political movement that's generating capital from doing that, Mm -hmm. the code of impartiality and objectivity contains no instructions for what to do under that circumstance. And so that's how you get, for example, Marty Baron's famous phrase, which is a very important, fascinating phrase, we're not at war, we're at work. This is his way of saying oh, that we have, to, we have to stick to what we're doing, right? We don't, we, and we cannot be seen as anyone's adversary. So this, that kind of idea, that's, that's, that's another example of your point, that there's, there are these flaws in the software where bad actors can overwhelm the system. And, and not take control of the news so much as, like, waste everyone's time. A denial of service attack. Yeah, yeah. Denial, yeah. It's a slow-mo, <laughs> Sunday morning denial of service attack. That's Yeah, that's really wild because I think of um, this amazing shift that has happened where now the tech companies can't opt out. They can't say, like, oh, we're, we're not going to have this conversation. When Congress calls for you to testify or, or just average consumers are like, what, what are you doing about this? They have to engage, and and I think it's it's very telling. They have, in, in the sort of stereotype of what technologists do, chosen binary solutions. So when we talk about something like political ads, uh, as right. recently happened uh, in the last few I weeks, I tried to pay attention to that. Yep, Facebook said, "Okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna filter any political ads." And Twitter's like, we're going to ban them all and not take any money for them. You know, there's sort of this very like, you know, feast or famine kind of solution thing. Yeah. And and it seems like both are this attempt of like, I don't want to understand this problem. I don't, I want to not have this problem. Okay. I think you really hit it there. I want to not have this problem because that that's what I have seen in Facebook's dealings with this, this media political space where it has power within the political communications world. So it gets attacked as a player, but it doesn't want to be a player. So it can only accept. <laughs> you can't dis- opt out. Yeah, it can only accept descriptions of itself that kind of vouch for its neutrality, uh, right? That's so interesting. And and that doesn't actually describe what's going on. So I'll, t- I'll give you an example. When Facebook was coming up with its original fact checkers uh, alliance, it, it it collaborated with a group of nonpartisan quote unquote fact checkers like ABC T- News mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. FactCheck.org. And before they announced the system, they emailed me and said, can we get your thoughts on this because we want to see how people are going to react. And I'm not a reporter, so I didn't care mm-hmm. about breaking the story. So I, I yeah. said, sure, kind of thing I do yeah. all the time. Right? So I said, sure, I'll take a look. And I said, this sounds reasonable, but let me tell you, within an hour of announcing this, the right wing is going to say that these fact checkers you've selected is careful non and they're – they're all plants of the Democratic Party. They're just yeah. tools of the- It's been gamed. It's been, it's been yeah. gamed. It's, it's, within an hour, they're going to like, they're, they're not going to accept that the ones you carefully selected are carefully selected at all. They go, well, we're not trying to play any political role here. <laughs> I said, well, it doesn't matter if you're trying right. to or not. It's like, this is what they're going to do. Right. Right. We don't think- If this one is- team only wins when they work the refs, they are never going to not work the refs. Exactly. This, and this, I'm, I'm having a work the refs conversation with somebody mm-hmm. who's saying things like, well, we don't have an ideological axe to grind. And, and yeah, so, so what? Yes. Yeah, like, <laughs> so that kind of passivity, va- vacancy, you know, there's, there's got to be a function to that. Mm. I don't know what it is, but. You do you think it's intentional or do you think they don't know what they don't know? I think they did for a while 
have a culture in which denying that you are a media company, an editorial company, was the party line, was, mm-hmm. was what the company was It was saying. an effective strategy for a decade, plus. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, you can build a, you can build a trillion-dollar company on denying that you are what you are. And there's the additional factor of, from the point of view of a targeting ads company, false information is just as good as true information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even better in some ways. Yeah. That's the fundamental right. problem. The economics here, right? So, so there's, there's this incentive. The way the system works, the yeah. way it's designed. Yeah. The incentives are misaligned here because these truth teams, the truth squad within these companies is only ever going to be a cost. And they will never make the company more profitable. That's right. right. And they prevent scaling. And, and, and they, right, they're, they're inefficient. Scale, they're scale. inefficient yeah. in companies that, that prize efficiency almost above everything else. So we have this set of incentives. And we have a gameable system. And now people are saying, how do I take advantage of this? Yeah, and, sure. and when an attention has monetary value, because you have to pay for attention on these platforms, mm-hmm. unless you can hack it. Right. And here we come to the best hack, the most potent hack of the media system, which is Trump's own media. We can't call it a strategy, but it's mm. a presence. Yeah. Intu- uh, he intuitively is very savvy. Uh, I, I don't buy that part, but we can argue okay, about that. Sure. Um, but there's no question that his, let's say, his style, his political style floods the system with news. Mm-hmm. And almost all of it is newsworthy by the criteria that existed prior to Donald Trump, mm-hmm. like focused on conflict, mm-hmm. something new and original. Or the best definition in all of news? Holy shit. Do you, can you believe what happened? Yeah, right, right. So just on these like incredibly traditional, simple grounds of newsworthiness. It checks every box. Checks every box, pushes every buttons 24 hours a day. And because they've got this sort of factory model of how they monetize. Some do. Yeah. This, Anyone the, with a factory model you right, overdoses on it. Right. Yeah. They, this is like you, you, this guy is a, is a car factory that just spits out cars 24-7 for free. Right. And so. And if you're a car dealer, you're like, great. <laughs> right. Which is how we get to the famous statement by the uh, head of CBS News. It may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS, right? Which is a famous line about mm-hmm. Trump as a media phenomenon. Okay. Right. And everybody knows that now. But the reason I bring this up is because he, everything he does is newsworthy by traditional criteria. The only way to not be controlled by him is to reconsider the criteria. Oh, you got to change the algorithm. Yes, because he broke your definition of news, just as he broke the incentive system around fact-checking. Glenn Kessler, who is the Washington Post fact-checker, has said this on many occasions, that the difference between Trump and other presidents is not is that when Republican and Democratic candidates and presidents were fact-checked in the past, they would not like hold up their hands and say, you got me, but they would do something to change the situation. They would attenuate the most, the worst excesses. Yes. Uh, or they'd make the claim um, pass mm-hmm. muster, or they just stop saying it, mm-hmm. right? And Trump not only doesn't do that, he doubles and triples down, and then he does something further, which is he takes the friction raised by these false statements 
and taps them as a source of energy for his base and his campaign. Mm-hmm. And so in fact, that, their evidence of his correctness is the fact that totally, they're, they're pushing they are, back. They are, and he's kind of like delivering on a campaign promise, which is that I will put down, annoy, and drive these people crazy for you. Mm-hmm. And each time one of these fact-checking flares, you know, jumps out of the fire, he's he's making good on his promise. So anyway, now there's another regular institution of journalism that he broke. What we need is for the press to be able to somehow like meet and repair these and and replace them, you know, with something stronger built for this kind of information warfare. So, so this far, is, we this don't is, have it. <laughs> right. So this is really interesting because what I'm hearing in all this is exactly the kind of arms race we have in security in tech that we have in privacy in tech, where there's all yeah. these sort of hackers that are constantly coming yeah. in systems and you have to evolve your model. It is a kind of arms race, roughly speaking. Yeah, and yeah. And, and and it's interesting too, because you talk about the fact checkers and the 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 the, pred- the mechanism by which fact checking works is shame. Yes. Right? So if you totally. say, you said something that's not true, what we're assuming is sort of an, an, an emotionally developed maturity where being caught in a lie makes you feel shame and stigma to the point where you address your behavior modulated at least to some degree. So, so that's there. So, so there's this, there's this feedback loop. And what I see with this is an algorithm, right? And, and I look at like um, search engine optimization. This is like mm-hmm. how to make your, your content show up in Google. Mm-hmm. And they've been for 15 years now iterating on this. And first it was like, make your page look a certain way. And then it was make sure you got good headlines. And then it was make sure your, your links work a certain way. So they, they, they gradually added on top of this layer upon layer of essentially hoops you have to jump through. If you wanted to publish online or you want to share content online, or you wanted the, the things you were selling in your store online to show up in Google, mm-hmm. you would just do these things. And it's funny because they would never make they would didn't do a press release, which is now all your links have to be blue and bold letters, right? Mm-hmm. It would just sort of be folk knowledge that would get shared and and a little bit of cargo cultism, right? So there would be right. this sort of back channels of forum. Like I heard if you if you mention goats on Thursdays, your site will rank higher, you know, in Google and people will be like, Well, it works for him, I'm gonna try it. And so that practice evolves, or and now it's a billion-dollar industry, and it's evolved over 15 years. But Google tried to rationalize it a little bit. They sort of started to say, oh, we want to give you a set of guidelines or rules. They would go to the conferences and meet halfway with wow. this algorithm. But, but the point is the people that were playing this game were playing against a software algorithm that was created at Google and that had enormous economic value. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, perhaps trillions of dollars of economic value is is tied up into this. And so there were enormous incentives to figure out how to game it. And then once it became clear that this was an arms race between Google and these folks, and there were at that, you know, they're called the black hat and white hat SEO hackers, just looks like they were security hackers, they they sort of settled all this out. And in attention hacking, we don't have any of this narrative or any of this fluency. So Facebook has an algorithm for their newsfeed. It gets hacked by attention hackers regularly. They have grand pronouncements every once in a while when there is a catastrophic failure on the scale of a ethnic cleansing or an election being undermined. Right. And even then, it is this sort of weird mush back and forth where, where Facebook will say, well, we, uh, we are doing listening dinners behind the scenes with a couple of people on the right and a couple of people on the left. And we'll tell you afterwards after they're leaked who it is. But nowhere near the systematic approach of what would happen if this were a security hack. 
is that intrinsic or do you think that's strategic? Do you think they're sort of saying like, because I, I basically think there's, uh, are you evil or are you dumb? Right? Yeah. Like that, that's the question I keep asking about everything these days. Yeah. And, and, and there's one way, which is you're dumb and you don't know they're hacking you. And so you're just like having these dinners because you're like, that's all Zuckerberg knows how to do. Yeah. The other is you're pretty nefarious and you're like, well, this will put them off the trail and feel like we're doing something long enough for us to keep profiting off of this. Yeah. I really don't know, but my <laughs> my bias is towards one part of this, which is they build a machine that they couldn't control and they couldn't know exactly what it was doing. Mm-hmm. So we've built this thing and in a sense, no one is running it in, in that there are things that it's doing to the culture and the environment that we cannot track. Right. It's like the weather. It's too complicated to fully predict. Something like that. And we've and we built this thing and it's and in 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 that sense, that specific sense, it is out of control. Nobody wants to say that. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody in the regulators wants to really know that. Yeah. It it's kind of like goes beyond our measures of control, our institutions is our build for it. So I think it's like Part of what happens at, at Facebook especially is is that, um, but also that they – this part might be strategic, that they keep themselves politically stupid and dumb about media so that they can just blunder into the, what's, whatever is the easiest thing for the business. They kind of like play like six layers dumber than their engineering degrees – would attest. I think this is starting to change now because Facebook is interacting with more critics than it used to. And it has teams working and stuff where they need to like consult with other people and they're learning what Facebook. But the part that really interests me, and you would know more about this than I do, is I wonder when these things begin to become huge factors in the recruitment of talent, technical talent. Because I think technical talent has a, if anybody has power here, it's them. Yeah. So that moment is right now. You know, what, so. what what we see in tech and, you know, I've talked to, you know, the people who organized the Google walkout a year ago and, 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 and lots of people that's, that's been my network for, you know, 10 or 20 years in this industry is, is sort of the people who love tech, but are dissenters within it. You know, what I, I think we all came to understand five or 10 years ago was consumer boycott's not going to happen. No, nobody's going to stop looking at Instagram and, and disconnect themselves from their family on WhatsApp, almost no matter what happens, because you'd be complicit in anything in order to know how to talk to people you love. So given that that there is not going to be a consumer boycott, and we can't anyway with the amount of data they have, then you have a a challenge about how do you have any accountability. And one, you know, one vector is regulation, but that's a very slow one, somewhat by design and also because of lack of fluency from policymakers. And so then the big lever is their biggest expense, which is people and their highest in demand. And with that resource... I already see it. People are way, way more reluctant to go out there. They're not wearing their Facebook hoodie. And they are looking at their options around where they want to work when they're they're an engineer coming out of school. I think – and also there is a lot more competition for talent. So they're like, you know, the difference between an extraordinarily wealthy salary and a merely very, very high salary when you're 23 and you just got your degree is like – it's all monopoly money. You know, it all seems like it's a fiction. And so I think that that's starting to have some leverage. It, it is fascinating to watch, but it gets into, that's the workers. That's their leverage. That'll start to have some costs. I look at society though, right? We're talking about these algorithms being gamed. We're talking about whether it's playing dumb or being dumb. 
this 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 real social cost. And you know, going all the way back to the beginning, you talked about journalism as a institution that serves the public and has a role to play in a civil society. And now the narratives are going talking about fifth estate versus fourth estate. This is very, very fundamental, highfalutin language about the roles that things play in a functioning democracy, in a functioning society. And, you know, attention hacking sounds kind of trivial. It sounds like, you know, uh, uh, this is kids playing online. This is people sharing memes. But, but at a fundamental level, you're talking about undermining elections, right? You're talking about destabilizing institutions that matter for civil society. How does this play out? How bad is this going to get? I am pessimistic and in a darker mind every month or so about it. I think we're at a point now where between 25 and 30 percent of the electorate in the U.S. has been effectively siphoned off into a different media system where Trump is the leading source of information about Trump. And the rest of the new system effectively cannot get through or penetrate. Right. And this is also a conspiracy world. And if that's where the conspiracy world is strongest, yes. Um, and, of course, it is the original and very strong bond between Trump and his core supporters involved in that. But it's very important to realize that rejection of the information in the press is a condition of that bond. It's not a nasty word he flings in his tweets. It is a form of political mobilization. And it is also promise-keeping on Trump's part. As I said, one of the things he ran on that he definitely delivered on was, these fucking media people, I'm going to put them down for you, baby. You just watch. You're going to humiliate them. Totally. And he did it. And he completely delivered on that. And continuing to deliver on that promise is the presidency. It's not like a weird feature, a weird bug. Right. right? It, it it's is, the platform. It is, it is the heart of his political method, the heart of his political method. So then you take an institution like the American press, which it has difficulty changing under pressure, right? It's it's not an on-the-fly institution because— It's a lot like policymakers. It's slow. It's, it's, it's slow to change, right? Part, but partly because it has to produce every day. It's not like you can stop right. the news and, and engines it, and say, yeah, yeah we're going to— Let's pause and redo yeah, let's, let's, let's redraw that or let's, let's put a new operating system in. There's no such thing. Mm-hmm. Just like everybody knew that 2016 was a massive failure by the institutional press in, in the election, but the next day they had to start— Oh my God! There's going to be a Trump presidency. Now, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Like, it's already a huge right. story we have before to do, he's even started. Right. We have to do Ivanka Puff pieces because that's so the idea of like, well, let's take some time and pause and think what happened in, in this election. Like that never happened because in journalism you're under this constant pressure to produce, and there and and one of the consequences of that is that you always make mistakes and things get printed and published that are result of half done work, right? And so. Journalists are always vulnerable to criticism because their work is vastly imperfect. It has to be sent out every day. It would be like if you had to ship software every day, no matter what. Right. As good as it was, right. maybe you get lucky. And it's, right. You know. But we have that right now, right, where Apple rushes out the iOS update because they got new phones coming out. And everybody's like, man, this version of iOS is all buggy. And the, and the, you know, the flashlight doesn't work and all this stuff's right. going wrong. And you're like, oh, well, that's because they had a deadline and they had to get this out because the new phones had to come out. And hopefully they'll fix it later. 
But fixing it later is okay if it's like my iMessage is a little slow and laggy sometimes. It's not okay if you're like, we undermined an election. That situation has always been there. It's been weaponized by Trump. And, and so it's, it's not just that people mistrust the New York Times. It's way beyond that. It's they now have an information sphere that can elude the facts in the New York Times and carry them all the way through the campaign to the election. We've gone to the darkest depths now. Everything's broken. Mm-hmm. Everything's doomed. Yes, and all getting the, worse. All the incentives are misaligned. Yep. We have all this pessimism. The, the optimist in me still always believes there's something we can do. I'm curious for me as a engaged social media consumer, somebody who pays for journalism as much as I can, what can I do? Well, of course, you can support the news organizations whose work you would, you um, use, and that's obvious. Um, but I've been working on uh, a better answer for that in my um, directorship of the Membership Puzzle Project, which is a research project studying membership models to support journalism. Mm-hmm. So our founding distinction is between subscription and membership. Subscription is a product relationship. You pay your money, you get your product. If you don't pay, you don't get it. If you're dissatisfied with the product, you just stop paying and everybody understands. Membership is different. You, you join the cause because you believe in the importance of the work. Mm. If you join the cause because you believe in the importance of the work, then you should be able to support it, yes, with your dollars, which go to an open service that anyone can access. That's part of what you're doing with your money. That's right. part of what you want to support. It's, it's, you're subsidizing it for right? everyone. Right. But also, um, you can contribute. If um, we create participation paths where you can actually improve our journalism directly, for example, a database of expertise you have so that when we need it, we can call on you if you're a member. Right? Um, crowdsourcing projects that try to bring a lot of distributed information together in one place f- through the members, right? Lots of uh, facts you cannot otherwise find unless you have lots of hands picking up stones, right, and collecting them. So a better answer to, to your question would be when we have a fully developed notion of membership and people are involved in sustaining the news organizations they support and they do so because they believe in the values and the way that those uh, institutions are run and funded and they get the whole thing and they get why they're part of the business model, not just a consumer of news, right? right. And that they have to call out errors and they have to participate when necessary, right? That's the future that I I'm optimistic about, but we're not there yet. So to that point about the calling out and, and participating, what about me as just a ordinary social media participant? I see manipulation and misinformation all around me. Maybe I participate in it without even knowing. Mm-hmm. How can I be a better citizen? How can I be a better consumer of media and a better sort of participant in social media? Like what what are the ways that I get exploited that I become complicit in these systems that I might not know about? Yeah. Well, anytime you're talking about something that lots of other people are talking about and that's why you're talking about it, you're in a vulnerable position. Hmm. Because it's possible that you were brought there. Wow. You know. And these platforms encourage that. They do. Yeah. That's one of the normal ways of using them. Yeah. Um, I also try to observe this rule for myself, don't always succeed, of uh, chill before serving. <laughs> I think there's great value in cooling down before 
it's it's not censorship. It's like it's self control. <laughs> so chill before serving is mm-hmm. good. Um, the, the flip of the vernacular. I great. think it's really important, and I think you're quite aware of this. It's really important not to sort of like join gangs and you know what I mean, like attention gangs. Yeah, and I and I'm probably guilty of that sometimes. What. Yeah. You know, myself, like, uh, you, you really have to watch it. Yeah. Attention gains can be dangerous. I think about, like, networks like Twitter. Like, some of the most fun is when everybody's jumping in on something. If it's That's like a, true. If we're, like, we're joking about something and we're all having a good time. But the line between that and the gang can be thin. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one more rule I use. On Twitter and Facebook, too. Uh, I don't do much on Facebook anymore. But on Twitter, I try to be 100% personal, 0% private. So what I mean is everything that I do is an expression of, of Jay. It's like what I think, what I think about, what I care about. It's, it's authentic me. It's like I wouldn't talk about it if I didn't care about it. Mm-hmm. So it's personal. But 0% private means you can't tell where I am. I don't talk about my family. I don't talk about my lunch. I don't, I don't position myself in social space. It's jrose underscore NYU that is focused on the things that I know a lot about. So it's you as, it. as, as a sort of public intellectual yeah. and as a voice of what you are, but yeah. not as a, you know. No. And so that limits <laughs> yeah. uh, what I can do. Do you think that's compatible with influencer culture today where people are literally like famous because of how much they open up about – this is what I'm wearing. This is what I'm eating. This is where I'm at. This is who I'm It is to. intended to limit influence. I want to limit influence to the thing that I'm expert in. That's the only kind of influence I can gain from. Any other kind is actually lowering my, uh, my profile in, where, in ways that matter. Well, it's interesting. Your framing there is stick to what you know. And that's, a, that's such a powerful foundation, it feels to me, of both – one, how we can be responsible individually and what we do in social media. It is, yeah. And two, and what we should demand of these platforms, whether that platform is a journalistic institution or that platform is a, a social media, social networking technology institution, maybe asking them to stick to what they know may be something that can uh, reduce some of our, our social yeah. vulnerabilities. Jay, thank you for joining Sound Function. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we've been taking this deep look at journalism in the current era of social media and the internet, and a trust broadly, this entire season of Function is about trust on the internet. And it reminds me of a story of a personal experience I had, you know, back in 2015, when marriage equality passed at the Supreme Court uh, here in the United States. Like a lot of people, I was celebrating. It was really exciting. And one of the things that happened that day was a lot of public spaces and public buildings got lit up with rainbow lights, which was just incredibly moving. I had a friend send me a picture from the White House that it lit up in rainbow lights and celebrating the decision. And I took that picture and a couple others that I'd found online that people were tweeting out of rainbows lighting up everywhere in public. And I put them all together into a tweet, just sort of saying, you know, this is a wonderful day. And it wasn't until I got tens of thousands of retweets and people amplifying that message that I found out that some of those photos weren't from that day. I had inadvertently shared a message that was inaccurate. That tweet got so many retweets, it may be the most visible thing I've ever written in my life. Now, this wasn't a lie. I think those photos were from a different day. So it wasn't something where I was trying to mislead people. But I had had a role in amplifying inaccurate information. 
all of us have a responsibility to think about the information that we share. And the platforms don't always do a good job of reminding us of that. There's not often enough nudges to say, is that really a credible news source? Is that really the information you want to share? And even maybe at a fundamental level, is that even something that you're amplifying just because it feels good to you or because it's true? Those are the kinds of deeper, tougher questions that really drive the spread of misinformation and disinformation online. They appeal to our more basic emotional instincts. Sometimes they're good, they're celebrations, sometimes they're not so good. That question about how disinformation spreads online and what's causing it to happen on social media is so important and so fundamental. And it's what we're going to go deep on in the next episode of Function. I hope you'll join us as we go even further into getting ready for 2020 by taking a look at the role that social media has and being part of the political and journalistic process that we all rely on. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our glitch producer is Keisha T.K. Dutes. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. And our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. Thanks to the whole engineering team at Vox and a huge thanks to our team at Glitch. And you can follow me on Twitter at Anil Dash, but you should also follow the show at Podcast Function, all one word. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to us right now. And also check out glitch.com slash function. We've got transcripts for every episode up there, apps, all kinds of stuff to check out about the show. We'll be back next week and we hope you'll join us then. Thank you.